Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, plant this Word deep within our hearts that we would be drawn into Your presence and ever lift us up and grant us to know You. Grant us to draw near to You as You have drawn near to us. And help us, O Lord, to know that if You have drawn near to us, then You are with us. That You are present to us, that we might be present to You. So direct our eyes toward that truth and toward the cross of Christ to know that all that stands between us and You, O Father, has been dealt with in Him. And that You receive us continually for the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. In our passage today, we have a passage that I think is one that is hard to wrestle with, that is hard to walk through, because in it we have what appears to be a cruel Jesus, as one commentator put it. Jesus coming across as just being outright cruel to this woman. First He ignores her, then He refuses to listen to His disciples, and then He says that it's not right to answer her request. And yet, through the midst of all of this, this woman reveals a faith that is rock solid. She reveals a faith that looks to Jesus as the Messiah. She looks to Jesus alone and knows that He is the one who can supply her needs. And it truly is an amazing picture because in many ways she has every reason in the world to walk away. And yet, this Canaanite woman knows the promises of God so thoroughly that she will not let go of Jesus. She will not let Him go until He responds positively to her request. And it makes sense. After all, many people knew of the promises of God at this time. Israel had been there in the land for over a thousand years. They had conquered large sections of the land. And so, knowledge of what the Jews believed, of who their God was, would have spread. And we hear of that even in our Old Testament lesson today as we are reminded that God says explicitly that He will welcome the foreigner into His presence. The foreigner who comes with faith just as His covenant people are called to come with faith. Those who are changed by their faith are welcomed into His presence. The Old Testament is full of this idea that those who are not part of the covenant people of God will be welcomed into the covenant people of God. We see examples of it, of course, throughout the Old Testament. We have Rahab of the city of Jericho confessing faith in Yahweh before before the spies and saying, I know who this God is and that He has come to give this land to you. We have Ruth the Moabitess who abandons everything to follow her mother-in-law back to the land to become an Israelite in the midst of the Israelite people. 
We even have Naaman, a general of one of the enemies of God's people, confessing faith in Yahweh after Yahweh heals him in the river. So desperate is he to know the Lord and to worship Him that he asks to take a pile of dirt back with him that he might worship on the soil of Israel when he worships Yahweh. And he even says, pray for me to Elisha. Pray for me because I will have to attend my king in the temple. And he may lay hold of my arm and when he kneels down and cause me to kneel, but I do not worship that God any longer. I worship the true God from now on. For He has received me, He has heard my prayer and heard my need and healed me. And so there were foreigners, Gentiles, those who were not part of the covenant who were welcomed and received. And so we should not be surprised that a Canaanite woman would be received by the Lord. Something for us to recognize in the midst of this text is that in all of our requests from the Lord, we must continually cling in agreement with who we are without Him. We must cling in agreement with Jesus that we are sinners in need of His mercy. For without this mercy, we will not be made into who He desires us to be. Now we agree with Jesus that we are sinners in need of mercy continually. That is where we are today. And that is where we will always be until the return of Christ, when our bodies are purified and sin is cast away, that we will no longer be sinners, but we'll be the full recipients of His mercy and enter into the glorified state, purified completely and made perfectly holy before Him. But between now and then, we are those sinners in need of His mercy, and we must cling in agreement with Jesus about us. And so the first thing in this text that I want us to think about as we consider that agreeing with Him that we need mercy, is the Canaanite woman who comes. Jesus had been traveling and teaching, and now He withdraws from Galilee. He goes up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is along the coast of the Mediterranean, many miles north of Israel. Now these names should be familiar, Tyre and Sidon. Where have I heard that before? We've probably heard it in many prophecies in the Old Testament about how God will punish them for their wickedness and their sins. But there's also another place where we hear about Tyre and Sidon. It's during the reign of King David. David formed a political alliance with the king of Tyre, Hiram, because they were both at war with the Philistines. The Israelites were attacking them on the ground. They were defeating them in battle after battle on the ground, and Hiram was attacking them from the sea. He was challenging them on the waters and was able to defeat them as well, and so they formed a political alliance in the sense of the the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that Tyre and Israel were against Philistine together, Philistia together, and so they banded together. So strong was this relationship that Hiram sent workers and artisans and materials into Jerusalem so that David could build his palace. And later on, when Solomon was ready to build the temple, Hiram also responded and sent artisans and materials of all sorts into the land that the temple of God might be built and be glorifying to God. So there's a strong relationship between these two peoples. And it was a good alliance that lasted for a long time, but unfortunately, 
After the time of David and Solomon, it turned bad. Because with all military alliances, with all political alliances, they're held together so often by marriages. And there was a princess of Tyre who became the queen of Israel after the splitting of the kingdoms. This princess was Jezebel, who married Ahab. And we know about Jezebel. She is the wicked queen that Elijah challenged so often, who brought in the idolatrous worship of the people of Tyre and Sidon. When she married Ahab, she brought her idolatry with her. She did not convert to the faith, but instead she sought to convert the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, to her faith. And she was very successful in that. The people continually turned away from Yahweh in the north. But even more, Jezebel and Ahab had a daughter, Athaliah, who then married one of the kings of Judah, Joram. And she too brought that very idolatry into the heart of Judah itself. Such that even one of King David's descendants was a worshiper of the same gods as Jezebel and the rest of Tyre and Sidon. That this political alliance turned sour and turned the hearts of the people away from Yahweh. And those events, those two marriages, begin that eventual downfall of both kingdoms. That idolatry becomes even more of a plague upon the people after the high note of worship during David and Solomon's reigns. Quickly after that, it all descends into chaos as idolatry quickly comes into the land. And that is what Tyre and Sidon become remembered for. Those who drew the heart of God's people away from God. That they were the ones who laid the groundwork that would lead to the downfall of the kingdoms. And so Tyre and Sidon were not the kinds of places that you would find a faithful Jew typically traveling through on purpose, wanting to go there and be there. But yeah, here is Jesus in that district, traveling and finding peace, finding rest from His ministry for a while. And while He is there, behold, a Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman comes to Him. And what's interesting about this, the way Matthew relates it, is the Canaanite woman is that this is the only time that particular word is used in the New Testament. Canaanite. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's used of this woman that Mark refers to as the Syrophoenician woman. She is a woman from that area, which politically, after Rome took over, became annexed to the area and district of Syria. And so, to separate it from Syria, they called it Syrophoenicia. It was part of that district, and it was a sub-part of that district. And here is that woman, a Syrophoenician woman. But Matthew calls her a Canaanite. And I think Chad Bird points out an important point here when he says that he's wanting to recall to our minds the battles with the Canaanites in the past. That Joshua came into the land and he was to expel the Canaanites from the land that the people of Israel would lay hold of it and be there. And here we have the second Joshua, Jesus, encountering a Canaanite. For after all, Jesus is in many ways the greater Joshua, for his name is the same as Joshua. In Hebrew is Yeshua or Yehosha. Both of those names come into Greek as Jesus, and we receive the Greek form of that down to this day by calling Jesus, Jesus. But he is in reality the second Joshua, the greater Joshua. And here, I think Matthew is wanting us to consider and remember how did Joshua treat the Canaanites? Did he not drive them from the land as best he could, leading the people of Israel? And what will Jesus 
the new Joshua would do with a Canaanite woman. So we have the groundwork set up of this Canaanite woman coming to Jesus and asking, how will Jesus treat her? How will He respond to her as a representative of the people that were to be driven out of the land so long ago? And so the woman comes. Does she curse at Jesus? Does she yell at Him for being a Jew in her region? No. She recognizes who Jesus is and immediately she cries out to Him and comes to Him and crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon here. Son of David, that messianic title coming from the lips of a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, but one that Matthew calls a Canaanite. A descendant of the very people that were rejected by God in the land. Here she cries out to Jesus with a messianic title, Son of David. She recognizes who He is and knows that He is the Lord to come. That He is the Messiah, the descendant of David, who is to take the throne of Israel eventually. But how does Jesus respond with not a word? He says nothing to her. He doesn't say no, but He most certainly does not say yes. He remains silent to her pleading with Him. And in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised. For after all, how often do we hear of even the Israelites crying out, How long, O Lord? Multiple Psalms start off with that and have that refrain throughout them, How long, O Lord, will you ignore my cries for mercy? How long, O Lord, will you just remain silent in the heavens before your people and their need? And so here the Lord of heaven and earth, hearing this woman cry out to Him, remains silent before her. It's almost as if heaven itself is mute. But a delay in action also shouldn't surprise us. For after all, there are many times of delay in the Bible. Even in Jesus' own ministry, there are moments of delay. Remember when Jairus came to Jesus and asked Him to heal his daughter. He went to do it, but he was delayed in going by the woman with the issue of blood. He took the time to speak to her and delayed getting there, such that the people of the household said, Do not bother Him, for she has died. And then He went in and brought her back to life. He delayed on His way to healing her. He didn't immediately feed the 5,000 in our previous narratives. Instead, He asked the disciples, what are we going to do? Why don't you feed them? Why don't you do something? In order to draw out from them that faith to say, this is all we have. This is impossible, Lord. He delayed in bringing about the healing of Lazarus until after he had died and been buried for three days. He delayed coming to Bethany to heal even his greatest friend, Lazarus. And throughout the Old Testament, we know of delays, the greatest delay probably being of Abraham and Sarah leaving the land of their families and traveling to the land of Canaan on the sheer promise that God would provide an heir to Abraham and that through that heir, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That Abraham would be known throughout the world because of his offspring. For 25 years, they waited and waited and waited for that heir to come. How much silence must Abraham and Sarah have had to endure during that long journey and subsequent wait? And so Jesus remains silent before this woman. But she continues to plead and plead. 
For his disciples came and they begged him, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Send her away. Usually we hear this phrase as just get rid of her. Just get rid of her. She's bothering us. But I think with Jesus' answer there, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That there's a sense in the disciples' words of just give her what she wants. She wants her daughter healed. Heal her daughter and send her away because she's just annoying us. She's just loud and obnoxious and won't be quiet, Lord. They, of course, have the wrong attitude about this. They just want to get rid of her. And so their way of getting rid of her is just give her what she wants. And I see that so often in my own life of when someone needs help, just not really entering into the struggle that they have, but just simply giving them a little bit of something and sending them on their way so quick to just put someone off to not enter into where their struggle is, to enter into knowing who they are. And that's what the disciples are doing in this moment. Just give her a little bit of what she needs and we can go on with our day, Jesus. But He challenges them. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I came to them, not to the Gentiles right now. And so He challenges them once more. What are you going to do about that? Still, in a way, ignoring her, not answering her request, not saying no, but not saying yes. He challenges his disciples to think about what they're asking him to do. And after that, she clung to Jesus. She came and knelt before him and worshiped him. She says, Lord, help me. The Canaanite woman is full of faith and perseverance, she is unwilling to let Jesus go. And here he says probably the most striking statement. It is not right. It is not proper to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs have a very negative reputation. And so this was a normal Jewish insult. It's almost as if Jesus is simply saying here. And his challenge to the disciples of saying, I was only sent to the house of Israel. You want me to heal her. And in their hearing, he then uses one of the Jewish Slurs against the Gentiles that she's a dog. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs because dogs were the scavengers. They were the ones that went around eating whatever they could scavenge and find. And having mentioned Jezebel earlier, I can't neglect to mention that that is who took care of Jezebel's body after she fell to her death. The dogs came and ate her up and licked up her blood. The dogs came and dealt with that, that old Syrophoenician woman, that old idolater Jezebel after she died. And even though Jesus does say and use a diminutive here, that it could be translated as and throw it to the little dogs, which might have a sense of the house dogs that you might have around that might clean up the mess around the house. But nonetheless, He still is seemingly refusing her request, challenging her and challenging His, his disciples, challenging everyone and how they think and how they react to Him. But what does she do? She does the one thing that I wouldn't expect her to do after being seemingly insulted in front of the disciples. She clings to Jesus in agreement with what He said. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their Master's table. In a sense... I like how Martin Luther said that to paraphrase him that she catches Christ with his own words in this moment. Jesus says it's not appropriate to give the, to give the food to the dogs that is meant for the children. She says, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. 
Even dogs get to eat of those crumbs. Even the dogs get the leftovers, the little bit that can be left over after the children have something, after those who you have come to, those who are you intended to take care of. Are there not even crumbs left over for the little dogs to come and clean up? She fully agrees with him that in comparison to the children of Israel, she is but a dog. She is not part of the covenant. She is not part of God's people. She takes on that very condition to say, I am outside the children of Israel. I am not a child of Abraham. I am not in the covenant that Yahweh has made. And yet, I know that God has made promises to the Gentiles to receive those who cling to Him in agreement with their condition, with the very condition of mankind that we are all sinners and so we deserve nothing from Your hand. And yet, that merciful God who covenanted with Israel has promised that all who come to Him will be received by faith. That those who will seek mercy will receive mercy. Those who seek kindness will receive kindness. That He will give compassion to those who know that they do not deserve it. Who know that they have done everything in the world to separate themselves from that very compassion. Yet crying out that they are unworthy of that compassion will mean that God will respond with compassion. This is what happens in this moment. That she clings to Jesus in agreement with her condition. That if she is to be a dog, even the dogs get the crumbs. But what is amazing here, that it's not merely that she gets crumbs. She doesn't receive crumbs. She receives the fullness of what she desires, of what she is asking. And Jesus says, Woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. You see, Jesus responds to her faith and grants to her that which she is asking of Him. He responds to her faith, for her faith is great, and He no longer sees her or wants her to ever be considered as a dog or even a little dog. He welcomes her up to the very table of the covenant people of God in that moment, showing up the disciples in their desire to just get rid of her, showing up all of the good, seemingly, the seemingly good Israelites that He has been dealing with. Here is a woman of true faith, Once again, in the Gospels, we see Gentiles express such deep and heartfelt faith before Yahweh. And I don't think it's accidental that this comes up right after a passage about the condition of our hearts. That out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's what defiles a person. It's not what's on the outside that defiles a person. It's what's on the inside that our hearts are broken. Our hearts are are adrift from the one it is to be anchored to. And when they are adrift, then evil thoughts will flow forth. And here is a woman whose heart has been turned by the Lord. Here is a woman whose heart is full of faith. A woman who has drawn near to the Lord. Because Jesus came to call the unrighteous, not the righteous. He came to call the sick to Himself, not those who are well. And that is what this woman agrees to. She agrees that she is unrighteous. She agrees that she is sick and seeks after His healing for herself and her daughter ultimately. And so to agree with Jesus is to place ourselves in that position to ask for that which we do not deserve because it can't be by our merits if it's by God's mercy. For if God judges us by our merits, then God does not show us mercy. If He judges by merits, then we only deserve what we get. 
And that is nothing ultimately if it's on merit. But yet God does not give us our just desserts. He does not give us what we deserve. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. He gives us compassion. He receives us. Though we are weak and full of sin, though we are rebels and rejecting of Him in so many ways, He receives us when we cry out for mercy, when we cling to His promises and say that all those who come to Him and seek forgiveness, who seek compassion, who seek mercy will receive it. That we are welcomed and received and we can receive the very thing that we have no right to because God is merciful and compassionate and kind. And so we cling to that truth. We cling to the reality that we are unworthy in and of ourselves. We cling cling in agreement with Christ Himself every single week as we walk through the liturgy. We have reminders continually of that unworthiness that we are sinners who can't approach God in ourselves. That we must come and plead the mercies of Christ Himself. Because God has given us Jesus. God drew near to us when we were yet enemies. God drew near to us when we were rejecting Him because He came to us in Christ. And so we can now approach God through Christ because God drew near to us that we might draw near to Him. From the colic for purity, asking for the cleansing of our hearts and our minds, for the cleansing of our thoughts, to the confession of sin, we are embracing the reality that we are unworthy But yet, in Christ, we are received. We are made ready through these prayers to receive that glorious and complete grace of God. And even in our Eucharistic prayer, we hear these words that come from this narrative, that references this narrative. We say, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. That we cannot come in our own righteousness. We come to a merciful Lord. We come to a Lord who though He may be silent at times, though He may remain silent momentarily, we know His promises. And we know that in Christ it is yes and amen when we cry out to Him for mercy. Because we know who our God is. We know that He has given us Christ to redeem us and to renew us and to fulfill in us what we cannot do ourselves. And what's so beautiful is as we say that we are not worthy to gather those crumbs, but you are the one who is full of mercy. We then ask for the greatest thing that we would then be fed. That we would be fed with the flesh of Christ. That we would drink the blood of Christ for the healing of our bodies and souls. That through that bread and wine that we receive, through those meager physical crumbs, we receive the spiritual body and blood of Christ. Because we cling to Jesus in agreement that we do not deserve that. We agree with our condition before Jesus. And in clinging to that condition, we can honestly cry out for true mercy. No matter how long it takes to hear that answer, we know that He will fulfill it because He has promised to fulfill His promises. We know that He will give us a yes to mercy because He has already given us Christ. We have nothing else to seek but to seek Christ, to look to Him, to receive Him. No other basis but Christ to come to the Father. We are unworthy to gather these crumbs, but You are the God whose character is to always have mercy. 
You are the same all at all times. And we can come to You and ask for that mercy. We can persevere in crying out for mercy over and over and over. And we cling to the reality that we do not deserve it. We cling to the reality that God makes us worthy through Christ to receive all that is His, that we might be changed evermore. In that clinging, we live out the kind of faith that God desires. We cling saying, I am unworthy. And in faith, we receive God's promises to renew us. We receive the very faith that flows out of His promises to bring us forgiveness and renewal and transformation. And so this day we are called to cling to Christ in agreement with what we are in ourselves, knowing His promises, knowing His healing, knowing His transformation. And so may we do that evermore this day and always clinging to Christ in all that we need, clinging to Him alone and seeking after Him alone that we would be healed and receive His mercy always. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.